Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We broadcast our program from the Hayburn Building here in downtown Louisville. This show is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, and we are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We do this show because of the fragmented healthcare system that costs twice as much in this country as it does in other developed countries with worse outcomes. We've got tens of thousands of Americans who die unnecessarily each year because they can't access care. And over 100 million Americans carry medical debt, often leading to bankruptcy. We also have a system that is privatizing our beloved Medicare program. If you'd like more information from our sponsor, Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. That's kyhealthcare.org. The views and opinions expressed on Single Payer Radio, they are our own opinions and do not represent the views and opinions of the radio station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the project. This program can be heard on WFMP 106.5 FM on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. You can also listen to past shows when you go to forwardradio.org slash single payer. WFMP 1065 is an all volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and our funding. Join us. Mike? Yeah, this is uh, Michael Flynn, retired surgical oncologist from the UofL Department of Surgery. Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments I make uh, during this program represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. Yes, my uh, comments are those of mine. They do not represent the University of Louisville, nor do they represent Taylor Regional Hospital. They are strictly uh, my views. our topic today is administrative issues in healthcare, and we have a special guest uh, today, uh, Don Henderson. Uh, Gene is going to introduce him, and then he will be given an opportunity to make whatever comments he'd like to make for as long he'd like to make them, and then we'll begin the conversation. Gene? Well, Don, it's really good to have you. Um, Don and I are cousins. His mother and I were first cousins, so I does that make us first cousins once removed? Yes. Okay. I always well, get I'm you. glad you straightened that out. <laughs> uh, Don has been a, uh, as a graduate of uh, William and Mary uh, College in Williamsburg, Virginia. I think that's one of the oldest uh, colleges in the United States. And he also has an MA degree from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. 
and he's just recently got a doctor's degree from Central uh, Michigan University. He's been administrator of various hospitals. We don't have time to go through all the details or we spend all our time uh, talking about what Don's done, but it's very, very impressive. And he's just recently gotten a new job in Tampa at one of the medical uh, schools. Don, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what your new job's gonna be? And then we'll try to get into some topics uh, on the real problem of administration uh, in the U.S. medical system. Well, thank you, Eugene. Yeah, I, I, I'll just say, because I don't want to time it short, but, you know, I'm very pleased to be involved in this teaching of healthcare administration at the graduate level. And uh, my background is over 30 years of experience as a hospital CEO. And uh, recently I made the decision to step away from my first career and start a second career as in academics, and I'm pleased about my new position down in uh, down in Tampa. Okay, Mike, you want to yeah, start off? Yeah, Don. Uh, <clears throat> let me begin with uh, um, there is an article in the uh, New York Times, uh, Sunday article in June of 2019 uh, that uh, was into the issue of. Uh, how uh, the increase in administrators between the 1970s and the 2010s is an astonishing 3,000% increase in administrators in American healthcare. And uh, there's another uh, similar reference uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that has a nice uh, diagram that shows that uh, the spike uh, occurred in the mid-1990s. So I wonder if, if, if you could comment on that. I guess my question is, what are all of these administrators doing today that they weren't doing in the 1970s? Yeah, that's a great question, Doc. And, uh, you know, I have a few things I'd like to mention. First of all, you know, the healthcare system in the United States is radically different now than it was in the 1970s because, as Eugene knows, our, my grandfather was a general practitioner and medicine was, was privatized. It was much simpler then. And, of course, then Medicare and eventually Medicaid came in. But, uh, you know, to give you the perspective over the years I've been in the hospital administrative field, uh, there's no question that billing and insurance costs rocket as and so rather than saying administrators i prefer to just say administrative costs which would clearly involve administrators but other costs as well so you know the, anybody who's ever had a bill from a hospital or a medical provider knows that billing is incredibly complex it's very costly you know the costs of billing and, and collecting uh, continue to escalate uh, one of the other big changes uh, since i started in the field a long time ago uh, revolves around the, the side costs of the uh, Affordable Care Act. You know, one of the one of the mandates of the High Tech Medical Act in 2009 was that all providers had to adopt and, and become proficient in electronic medical records. And speaking as a former hospital administrator, that generated millions of dollars in additional costs. But the costs are not only the initial cost of putting in the electronic systems, but also 
the daily maintenance costs and the evolving costs of staffing and uh, keeping those systems up and running. You know, the, the idea of the systems was to improve quality, and I think we have improved quality based on the data that we've collected, but it's certainly been at a, at a very large cost. Uh, a third part of this uh, administrative cost revolves around quality assurance and credentialing because, as everybody knows, part of the uh, Affordable Care Act was putting a lot of new mandates on hospitals and providers as far as uh, developing and keeping, maintaining quality programs. Uh, we never thought this would happen, but even individual physicians' offices now have to have a quality program. And unless they want to get in trouble and have penalties from the federal government, they also have to have a quality administrator to do all this paperwork. And of course, federal and state and local regulations continue to evolve. Uh, so I think that kind of gives you a succinct idea of why administrative costs continue to climb in the system. And, you know, I, I think that the current system at the growth rates that we're looking at is probably only sustainable for another five or 10 years. So there's no question that healthcare reform needs to occur. Well, Don, let me make a, a kind of a look at it from a little different perspective. In, in my opinion, uh, the reason that healthcare is so expensive and so complicated in this country is that it, we have it in this country. We have a healthcare industry. Most other first world countries, and we can talk about that later. Or the examples have healthcare systems much of which is run by some sort of governmental oversight or governmental payer from Taiwan to England to Norway, whichever country you want to pick. And the insane complexity of our system is partly because well, the, the focus on a healthcare industry making profit from uh, every healthcare activity from uh, uh, ordering a CT scan and having to go through the pre-authorization uh, issues to uh, surprise billing to the fact that we have over a thousand for-profit health insurance companies, each with 20 or 30 different plans <clears throat> who literally take hundreds of billions of dollars out of the healthcare system. So, uh, and, uh, admittedly, there are some issues related to the, 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 the issues related to the Affordable Care Act, but I think that that is a, a fraction of the, of, the, of the complexity and the cost of healthcare in this country. And Jane, Jane has got some data about where the money goes, and maybe we can get into that a little bit after you have an opportunity to to respond to my issue about my, you know, the, the, the healthcare industry versus the healthcare system. Yeah, I, you know, I, there's lots of different ways that healthcare reform could be initiated uh, to sort of start to address the issues that you're, that you're uh, recommending, Doctor. So, you know, my own personal belief is that we do need to evolve towards a single payer system. Uh, and that system has to be fair to all. You know, it can't be, the rates for providers can't be so low that it makes the system untenable. On the other hand, you don't want to have windfall profits because if you have windfall profits, then the for-profit companies 
will take money out of the system. But I, I believe the ideal system as we look towards healthcare reform efforts is to maintain our system of private uh, medical providers as much as we can, uh, and then uh, find ways of reforming the administrative side of the equation. Um, and, you know, if, if you look at some of the countries, I've looked at Taiwan and Japan and South Korea very specifically, their systems are largely privatized medicine, which I think is, is, is ideal because you want the providers to have an incentive to, you know, provide good care, but also you want them to be able to make a living. And, and, the, and also competition is very strong in these South Asian uh, countries. Uh, so I think that there's a combination there. I think the single payer system has to be combined with the, the maintenance of, of private medicine as much as we can. How would you design a single-payer system in this country where almost everything is going for profit? For example, the for-profit insurance companies are making huge profits uh, and during the COVID, they just cashed in. Uh, we've got uh, uh, practices being bought up by equity companies just just this month i personally know of two practices that uh, were bought up by for-profit companies one of which really surprised me it's a traditional practice that's been going on in a small town in kentucky uh for uh, probably 50 or 60 years so how can we get rid of the for-profit get everybody covered and still have uh, competition among uh, the providers and decrease all this uh, phenomenal expense with administration? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, you know, the first part of it revolves, and, and you know, I go back to 2008 to 2010 when all of these debates were being held. And I think that a lot of the insurance companies were very fearful that they were going to lose their ability to provide health insurance. So you've got a you've got a dual choice there. You can either create a two-tiered system where you allow private insurance to continue, or you basically uh, bite the bullet and have all insurance be provided through uh, a Medicare type of system. And the benefit of doing that, I would advocate for that, uh, even though it's painful to lose all these insurance companies, but. I would advocate for that because I think that the administrative costs of doing that would be much lower. And here's here's an idea from Taiwan that I'll propose to you, and that is in Taiwan, everybody gets an insurance card that's very similar to the Medicare card that folks have, but there's also a chip there inside the card, and the chip keeps the patient's medical records uh, in, a, in a condensed format so that when the patient goes to any of the private providers there in the system, they just plug in the card and, and the claim is automatically paid. There's no forms, there's nothing to fill out, and the encounter the encounter is automatically billed. So I think, you know, I can't really comment on whether physicians need to continue to organize into larger groups or into uh, Wall Street backed firms. That that's something you guys need to talk about because you're doctors. But I can tell you that the first step is the single payer system, but it's a single payer system that has to also streamline and reduce regulations and i think you know 10 years out or 12 years out now we need to take another look at the 
administrative regulations proposed by uh, the Affordable Care Act because my argument is is that some of that is excess and redundant. So if you're going to take a look at the system, you need to look at eliminating unnecessary regulations as well. I think if you look around the world, there are plenty of examples of, of how to do this. Uh, the Canadians put a system in in 1984. Uh, we've had a, there's a surgeon up in Hamilton, Ontario, that we've had on this program uh, at least on two occasions and hopefully getting him back again in the next few months. Um, he's a surgeon uh, like I was and uh, is in a medical practice uh, attached to a medical school. Um, for the 30 years I was in practice at the University of Louisville, I can't even, we had, we had a whole department of people who were uh, involved in doing everything from pre-authorization to trying to figure out what a patient is covered on what particular insurance plan they've got from which of the 1,000 for-profit insurance companies, and there's a huge expense. He, his office is run, they have a very simple, a very simple uh, process in there, and, and they have, hey, he had one or two people who would send the bill to one, one they would send the bill to the, 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 uh, 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 the provincial government. Uh, uh, the, the money comes from the national government, but the program is run by the provincial government. It's very simple. And uh, they got a check within two weeks. Um, we often didn't get checks, or we, we had to go through all kinds of steps to justify what we were doing. I mean, Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, England has got a, they run the whole system. Most of the other first world countries have got some kind of governmental program that provides uh, health insurance, not, doesn't run the system. And, and you can get, you can get um, private health care if you want it, including in, in Great Britain. So there are ways to do this. Um, the biggest problem I think we're going to have in this country, I don't see anything happening anytime soon as the politicians, because I don't think most politicians understand health care. So. Well, what about uh, preserving the insurance companies, but regulating them down to non-for-profit and, uh, and having forms and regulations where uh, a patient comes in in Campbellsville or a patient comes in Louisville, and if you request uh, payments, all the forms are the same, and uh, it's simplified. Is that is that possible? Yeah, I think you have to uh, you have to look at some of the government programs that are already in effect here, because obviously we want to make this change incrementally. We don't want to completely transform the system overnight, because I'm not sure that's politically feasible, but. You know, if you look at something very similar, you've got the program called TRICARE, you know, and I've been involved with taking care of military retirees and their families for a long time. And in the TRICARE program, uh, you know, they they have an insurance card and it's accepted just about everywhere, although the TRICARE rates are, are low, they're actually lower than Medicare. But TRICARE is administered by a private insurance company uh, and, and all of the parameters are set up by the government, but they've they've turned over the administration to a private organization. One of them is Humana. I can't remember what the other one is. So there's ways, there's ways of keeping insurance companies involved 
but I would say that the program needs to be sort of a Medicare for all, Medicare plus for all program. Uh, if the program doesn't get standardized, then you're not going to get the savings. And so, you know, it's a radical step. But the other side of this is remember that the system is beginning to be pressurized to the point where it may reach a point of no return. And that is, you know, if you look at the last 20 years, the number of Medicare recipients in the United States has increased from about 40 million to coming up on about 75 million. So as this baby boomer generation comes through and they start consuming more and more health care, that's going to put a tremendous strain on the system. And uh, there's also the issue of equity, right? Because I can tell you as a hospital administrator that private patients get the first dibs on every kind of health care service. Medicare patients are sometimes discriminated against and don't get the same amount of ac access. People who have Medicaid get almost no access to the system except for emergency care. And then people that are uninsured are, are get even less care. So that's another issue that you'd want to try to address is to address the issue of equity among all of the folks who have health care. Well, we talk about uh, doing all this uh, and combining things and saving money. What really concerns me that in the started by the Trump administration and continued by the Biden administration, that CMS is uh, really on a road to privatization of, uh, of Medicare, for example. Uh, I think it's almost close to 50% of Medicare patients are on Advantage Care now, which is essentially uh, Medicare managed by for-profit companies. And I don't understand all the details, but I understand that uh, the for-profit insurance companies have done a remarkable job in marketing this, and most patients don't really understand what they have, and uh, the, the uh, insurance companies are really making a lot of money on Advantage Care. I wonder if you could uh, comment a little bit about Advantage Cares and the advantages and disadvantages of them. Yeah, I think, I think that there definitely are some advantages in the sense that but it goes back to the issue that the uh, doctor was talking about, which is that there's so much waste in the system. So the way the companies are making money uh, in these accountable care organizations is one type of system that's out there is there's so much waste, so much uh, over expenditure uh, that what they're doing is they're, they're, they're calling out short term savings. Now, you know, speaking from experience, there's only a window of opportunity for these companies to do that. You know, they're going to they're going to do the things that need to be done, which some are very positive, such as preventative care, uh, routine preventative care. But then there's going to be a time when those savings are exhausted. And that's going to be a, a concern because then the incentive for the companies uh, is going to be to postpone and deny care. And I have seen a lot of that. Uh, as we've dealt with some of the patients, you know, for example, in the hospital system that I used to run, you know, patients who came out of uh, complex medical conditions such as uh, cardiac arrest or stroke, they would need long-term rehabilitative care uh, in, in a rehabilitation unit. But many times the, the uh, for-profit uh, uh, Medicare managed companies would deny this care. And basically the patients had to languish in the hospital for extra time and we did the best we could, but it really was not an appropriate level of care. So I think you find 
that these incentives are going to have unintended consequences. And I also believe that uh, privatizing Medicare is going to in the short, get some short run savings, but in the long time, we're going to be stuck with a lot of for-profit companies who will run out of ideas on how to save money. And at that point, it's going to go back into the lap of the federal government. Don, what's your, what are your thoughts about uh, uh, what I would call the invasion of private equity into into healthcare? Seventy uh, percent of nursing homes in this country, at least my understanding, are run by private equity companies. Um, Gene alluded to a couple of practices that were bought up um, by private equity companies, and there's a ton of horror stories out there about. The, the, the management issues in private equity companies and nursing homes and in physician practices. So what are your thoughts about, you know, that uh, 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 and, and where is it going? Or again, what's the end, the end product here? Yeah, I think if you look at the long-term care industry, Doc, you're, you're looking at two, two different tiers there because you know, there's there's one part of long-term care that's assisted living, and that that is powered largely by private savings. And so, you know, like any other business, if there's an opportunity to uh, provide a return for investors, you know, the for-profits are going to go in there. The other side of this, though, is straight nursing home care, and that is really a very low-margin business. And I know that there are many private operators out there of nursing homes, but I I've had the personal experience of running a 250-bed nursing home, and there's not a lot of really, really great margin there. You have regional private companies that, that do the best they can, but what they do is they buy the nursing home so they can access the parts of the system, such as assisted living, memory care, and rehabilitative services that are profitable. But I would say the nursing homes are a loss leader. As far as the rest of equity is concerned, if you think about this, let's just say that we went to a single payer system where uh, there was not a chance for windfall profits because that's equity is going to come in when there's a chance to make a rate of return that's higher than the other investments that they can make in other uh, in other settings, right? So if, if, if the federal government comes in and regulates provider fees, and it has to be done fairly, I, I know that's going to be a Herculean task to, you know, I think, I think the final rates probably need to be set somewhere between Medicare and commercial rates for everybody, not just for a select few, but if the system is fair, that's going to squeeze out the for-profit operators because they won't have the chance to make windfall profits. Well, you know, regulating, um, I, I know in Britain that, uh, you know, if you're a surgeon in London and you work in one of the, 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 the hospitals in London and you may get a salary from the uh, the the uh, the healthcare system to provide care in the hospital, but you also have, you know have a private practice on the side. So, and and that the same thing is true in in in, in, in Norway and in many other countries. So I, I mean, these other countries have all figured out ways to to accomplish that without having. The system run by a thousand for-profit insurance companies, each with twenty or thirty plans. So, it's possible to do this. And again, my concern is that dealing not with 
not with the healthcare system as it exists, but dealing with politicians who are going to be the ones that, that, that end up deciding, you know, whether we end up with a, uh, a single-payer Medicare-for-all system or whether we stay with the healthcare industry or a public option or, you know, some uh, variability of any one of those. But, uh, yeah, the interesting... Yeah, the interesting thing, the interesting thing to me is that I don't think we're going to have a choice. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really confident that uh, the rise in costs, and we haven't talked about some of the other costs that are increasing, such as the cost of pharmaceuticals and other cost of medical supplies, the cost of technology. So all these things are coming together into a perfect storm where policymakers they can kick the can down the road a few more years, but there's going that that with the combination of baby boomers and the growth in, in entitlement programs, there's gonna to have to be a reckoning. And so I think programs like this can help, you know, steer us towards a, a way out, you know, because I, I, I don't think that you're gonna have the choice of of this current system uh, evolving and continuing to work. I think I think the system's gonna head for a crash. The first the first thing that's supposed to happen that will happen according to the the government accounting office is that the Medicare trust fund runs out of money. And that's supposed to happen in about three to five years. Uh, so, so the question is, what do you do at that point? Because your 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 Medicare uh, revenues are going to be flip flop with a large number of baby boomers that continue to retire and consume ever more health care. So, I I know it's coming. The day of reckoning is coming. But the the question is, what's the least painful alternative that preserves? I believe we should pre- preserve the private provision of, of, of medicine. I don't think that hiring all the doctors to work for the government is the right idea, but that's my own opinion. Well, I absolutely agree. And I don't, and most of the first world countries don't do that. I think Japan, they, they regulate the rates and, and they have a lot more control uh, and, and they do in Britain, but many of these other countries like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, you're in private practice. This fellow up in Hamilton, Ontario, has a very similar practice to the way I had it. He had an academic salary with the university, and then in his private practice, he did whatever he did, and the office that, that, that they were in took care of the, 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 the issues related to um, doing that as a, as a clinical practice, which was uh, similar but separate from the academic practice. So it can be done. I'm really pleased to hear your views about the prospect of a single payer system. I've, I've really been uh, uh, got a pretty negative view about the prospects from the future. And listening to you from an administrative standpoint makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> well, what's going to uh, be the central event that uh, breaks the system and then? Uh, uh, how we repair it? Uh, uh, well, I, one of the thoughts I've had and heard about is that uh, companies, large corporations, will eventually uh, get fed up with the high cost of healthcare and, and pressure the government into uh, changing things. They can compete overseas much easier if they get rid of their healthcare costs. Um, the federal government changing the rules and going to a single-payer system. Do you have any other thoughts on uh, how we can change the system and uh, how it will uh, revolve? And we're talking about maybe 
seven or eight years. Yeah, I one of the things one of the things I haven't mentioned is about pharmaceuticals because it was always galling to me that you know eighty percent of my patients had a fixed uh, payment structure and we had to negotiate that. And of course, the federal government gets to decide whatever they want to pay you, and you have to accept that. But but you know, pharmaceuticals have continued uh, unregulated in the United States, and I believe the growth rate is five to seven percent per year. Uh, some of that's due to population increases, et cetera. But uh, you've got a situation, and, and I think we saw that during COVID, where you know the, the, the pharmaceutical companies made windfall profits based upon the subsidies that they got to provide COVID uh, medications. So I think that in most of, as the doc mentioned, in most developed countries, there's a formulary. And, uh, you know, uh, your formulary is set up so that it covers 95% of the patient's medical needs. But you know, some of these uh, uh, retail medicines that they spend billions of dollars of advertising every year are not in the formulary. Now, you can still buy them uh, on your own if, if you want to pay out of pocket for them, or you can get health insurance to cover it. But uh, yeah, that's a big issue. I think uh, that definitely needs to be looked at. And then, of course, the cost of technology is another huge issue because if you allow the, the uh, providers of technology to just continue to raise their costs, then that will take away from something else in the system. So I think that there needs to be some more government regulation on what technologies uh, are adopted in the system instead of it just being a market-driven approach. And I think we need to get a formulary where a federal government authority, as it happens in all of Europe, there's a federal authority in all of Europe that negotiates directly with the drug companies to uh, regulate the prices. My understanding from the surgeon in Hamilton, Ontario, that the Canadian system, they have a health ministry. Health ministry has a, a, a committee of an assortment of people who are knowledgeable about uh, uh, pharmaceutical issues. And they, they look at the drugs, uh, the, the availability of different drugs and the cost of different drugs. And the costs of drugs in Canada are literally a fraction of the cost of drugs in this country. And in addition to that, and maybe you could comment on this, because I'm not, it seems to me there's some issue out there or some attempt to change this, but Medicare is not allowed by federal law to negotiate with the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, that's the, the most insane economic policy that uh, I, I, I can imagine. You know, where, where is that going? I mean, I, I think there's some attempt to, to uh, uh, change that. Well, there's, there's a formulary now for military folks. You know, there's a formulary for TRICARE and there's a formulary for active duty military. So. To try to argue that it can't be done, I think, is kind of a foolish argument because oh, they could I just take... I, I have TRICARE for life, yeah. Yes, they, they, they could just take the TRICARE formulary and, you know, modify it, but populate it over to Medicare, which would be a huge savings for the federal government, and then they could recommend that that formulary also be uh, included in private insurance plans unless unless we were to go to a single-payer system. If you if you go to a single-payer system... I. I, um, I took a trip, a mission trip with uh, my wife to Belize a couple of years ago. And, you know, that, that's a country that, you know, that they operated under the British system originally, but they're now an independent country. And you, you are, you can be amazed at what you can do with a very limited amount of generic medications. You can really cover 
80 or 90 percent of the medical needs of most of the population with with generic drugs. So it's it's really just a question of political will, like you previously mentioned. What do you think is the biggest problem with cost of pharmaceuticals? Why is it so expensive? I think that there's a there's an an economic incentive to you know the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, we don't to bash them too much. They're they're going to argue that they need you know that the cost of research and development is very high. They're going to argue they need to get a return because they only get a certain amount of years that their drugs are uh, are uh, cannot be made generic. But marketing is such a big deal because if you think about it, I mean, I think that I think that the purpose of the American healthcare system would be to try to, you know, first of all, try to provide basic medical care uh, for all for all citizens. And that would include primary care, emergency care and hospital care. Those those are, and specialty care. Those are the those are the basics. But beyond that, you know, uh, do we really need to pay for Ozempic? Ozempic, I'm going to pick on them. Probably Ozempic is going to sue me. But Ozempic is a drug that helps you lose weight. Well, yeah, OK, fine. But is Ozempic or these other weight loss drugs, which are very popular right now, and millions and billions of dollars is being spent in marketing them. And by the way, they're finding out that some of these Ozempic uh, medications have some side effects that they didn't they didn't anticipate. But I, I'm picking on that one. But uh, and please don't sue me, Ozempic. But uh, you know, is that really a basic need? Is that really provide basic care? We still have 10 percent or over 30 million of Amer- American population has no insurance. So if you compare that to the need for some people to do weight loss with Ozempic, then I think you can see that the system is out of whack. What about the pharmacy benefit managers? What percent do they play in the high cost of pharmaceuticals in this country? I, I, I've, you know, I've largely had mixed, mixed, uh, you know, mixed experience with them. You know, we were a large employer in my previous company. We had 3,000 and so you have to do a deal with uh, uh, these uh, benefit management companies, and you know they they extract their their profits through the system. But uh, I would still think you would need pharmacy benefit management even under a single payer system. So I, I don't know if that big savings could be gotten out of that. They get their pound of flesh like everybody else, but I, I don't know if that would you know result in uh, a great savings. Do pharmacy benefit managers exist in uh, Canada, Australia, uh, Britain, and other places like that? It's my understanding that in Germany, we had the, the Dr. Krauss on here and earlier in these programs, and uh, it was my understanding that the, 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 uh, the healthcare system negotiates directly with the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, there's not somebody in between you know, between it's insane. I think when you think about, they've got the 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 manufacturer, the distributor, the healthcare plans, uh, the pharmacies. They put formularies together. They put drugs on certain formularies and other drugs on other formularies, which gets the drugs sold, and then they and they negotiate different prices, uh, and they're totally irregular, unregulated. Uh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that that's not in my wheelhouse of expertise. Okay. Uh, the only thing I know is that whatever system we develop, if, if we do go to a single payer system, we're going to have to use a formulary, and then we're going to have to talk about the distribution process. Right? How do we right. how do we distribute, and do we keep 
do we keep the independent pharmacists the same or do we come up with some other distribution? And I'm afraid that's not in my wheelhouse of expertise. <laughs> okay. Well, Don, I know that you've worked at some small rural hospitals um, and rural hospitals seem to be closing at a rapid rate. Can you tell us a little bit about why they're closing and uh, what we can do to prevent it and, and the consequences of rural hospitals closing? Yeah, this is one of the toughest issues uh, for communities uh, that exist because, you know, if you look at the larger factors, you've got, uh, you know, it always gets back to the economy of the particular town or the particular area because there has to be one of the one of the one of the uh, consequences of all this healthcare regulation is that small hospitals with their limited resources can't meet these standards, and the federal government continues to squeeze them and require them to meet the same standards as mega uh, university hospitals. So you've got a lot going on on the regulation side, but you've also got the issue of just economic uh, downturn. And you've got, you know, industries in certain areas that have relocated overseas. You know, if you look at the South, so many of the South's uh, big industries and, and where we're from in Campbellsville, that was the largest underwear plant in the United States. And now I believe it's in Mexico. So, you know, the underlying under underpinnings of these so many of these rural communities have changed drastically and so the hospital's ability to survive you know if you realize that medicare usually pays hospitals at 10 percent below their operating costs and medicaid pays even less it's the percentage of commercial insurances and, and industry uh, commercial insurances that ensure the viability of hospitals and many communities have lost their uh, industries and the population is aging out, so that means the majority of folks have Medicare, which pays providers below their costs. So uh, I think that there's definitely an idea that that many rural hospitals will suffer, will be dismantled. Others will survive. One of the things that rural hospitals can do is diversify into other, other lines of business, but I think that many of them will close and be replaced by 24-hour emergency department type settings. I'm sorry to tell you. What, what will the consequences of that be? For example, uh, uh, OB it is a really big problem. If you have to drive a fifty mile to get somebody to deliver your baby, uh, that creates big problems. Um, and so, and somehow. We've got to preserve at least some of these rural hospitals. Maybe some of them can be regional. Uh, how do we how do we deal with that? Well, I think that as as the doc mentioned earlier, you know, you've got a lot of large regional health systems that have been formed in in most areas. I know you have a lot in Kentucky and in other states as well. In in Florida, we probably have a dozen large regional corporations. That some of them are not for profit, some are for profit, but they're going to look at each community, each rural health, each health system is going to look at each community and the ongoing viability of, of the operations there. And uh, to answer your question specifically about OB, it will be a tragedy if small hospitals lose their OB services. Uh, you know, one thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, could, could regular deliveries be changed to uh, an outpatient setting? You know, for example, I used to work up in Amish country up in uh, Pennsylvania, and they have a lot of rural 
uh, settings up there, and they and the, and the Amish people have decided that births are going to be an outpatient thing. Uh, that may be abhorrent to some, but I mean, they that's how they solve that problem. So you you may have to look at alternative models uh, to solve these these issues. And is care going to be as good as it used to be? No, but you know, it's hopefully good enough. That's all I can say. Well, one of the problems that we have is that seventy plus percent of our patients are Medicare and Medicaid, and then we have a small percentage, probably less than five percent, of no insurance. So that leaves us with a small percentage of commercial payers in order to uh, make some profit. So it creates a real financial uh, problem. Yeah, I think I think the answer there, Eugene, is to work with your large regional providers, and of course you've got excellent academic medical centers, and in other states, uh, the the academic medical centers have partnered with other regional health providers to try to come up with a system. I don't think that you can look to the federal government to solve this issue. There's just not enough resources to go around. So you have to the local people and working with their. I, th- I think the realization just needs to be that the system's going to have to evolve, and then you know, make, make your best deal to try to get the best services that you can maintain uh, in your particular area. Well, that's one of the things that we've done fairly well in Campbellsville. Uh, I've had a very close relationship with the Department of Surgery and the University of Louisville, and that has really been a great benefit to us. Uh, not, not only has it been a benefit to us, but also to them. For example, uh, we were one of the first to start a level three trauma center and it it helped us because we got more patients but it also helped uh, L because they had uh, less patients going there that didn't need to be at L. so it was a it helped both of us one of the uh, other things we've done we our cancer center is now affiliated with the university of kentucky Markey cancer center and they've done this throughout the state and they've been a great help in getting uh, resources uh, and uh, taking care of patients that we can't take care of. And also, they've even uh, recruited a medical oncologist for So I agree with you. This has really been successful. And one of the things that I think rural hospitals should do, it, it predominantly that needs to be, though, a doctor-doctor relationship. Uh, Don, you mentioned academic medical centers. Uh, the, the University of Louisville has had got uh, um, a really spotted history of its past. It was run uh, or at least managed by Humana for a while. <clears throat> it was managed by uh, Columbia HCA, and it was managed by uh, a not-for-profit from Denver Catholic Health Initiatives. And um, I'm not going to go through the nightmares of all of those three, but Catholic Health Initiatives, uh, I can't remember the details of what they, what went on, but they ran a program in, in Kentucky called Kentucky One. And it, it and there was another hospital in Louisville, aside from the university, that um, and there was a, a psychiatric hospital. I mean, they ran a lot of things, and this literally collapsed. The... Um, past president of the university negotiated a series of grants from the uh, the state 
and from a couple of, of, of Jewish organizations, because the Jewish hospital was the other hospital. This is now run locally by the University of Louisville. They have, they have managed to incorporate um, large surgical private practitioners into this system along with academic surgeons like that like me and this apparently has done has run very well we had one of these surgeons on an earlier program and, and he indicated that the 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 their uh, relationship and and the way they were treated was very positive i ran into the chief of surgery in a parking lot a while ago and he was telling me how how well this is done and it's run locally it's not for profit it's run by the university of louisville and it's really making a lot of money it's expanding it, it runs uh the, the two or three different hospitals including a psychiatric hospital so um if you can put that in that and get rid of the for-profit companies like humana columbia hca and distant management like someone sitting in a in front of a computer in denver uh deciding that the pharmacy at the university of louisville um should be managed in the same way that the pharmacy of a community hospital would be managed when in fact uh, the pharmacy of the university of louisville needs a lot of personnel because all the drugs that are in various research studies are, 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 you know, are, are, are managed through that, that pharmacy, um, and you put it, put it in local control and it's done remarkably well. And it's very profitable and, and without, without, uh, you know, profits going to, uh, to investors and, uh, CEO is making 16 or $20 million a year. Yeah, I think that I, you know, we have a similar experience, uh, our system down here that was independent merged with the University of Florida and nothing is perfect, you know, and I, I know the community uh, is is uh, still evaluating this whole thing. But uh, the University of Florida has resources and, and medical expertise that's just not available here in the local area. So I think generally the merger has gone well and uh, working with large academic medical center, having the experience of doing that for several years, uh, you realize that there are many creative solutions available there. And I think that each outlying medical community might want to turn to them first as the not-for-profit alternative and see if they can figure out some way to make basic healthcare work in their area. Well, let, let's, we've all recognized that uh, political environment is going to probably drive the change in healthcare in this country. Uh, if you look down the road from your experience, uh, which is, is quite extensive, what sort of recommendations would you make for uh, people like Gene and I and Mark, or, or just, you know, how, how can we affect the, the decisions that politicians are are going to be making about what would be a remarkably remarkable change in healthcare in this country. And just let me let you know, we're, we're down to the last five minutes. 
Okay. Well, that's a that's a great question to solve the whole problem of the United States in less than five minutes. It's a, it's a great it's a great honor that you well, given. Well, we're looking forward to your thoughts. Let me let me say it this way. Well, let me say this way. Um, I've studied because I just got a doctorate in healthcare administration. I've studied international healthcare systems pretty extensively as I pursued my doctoral studies. The most ironic thing is if you look to South Asia, if you look to Taiwan, Japan, and uh, South Korea, they are some of the lowest cost and most successful healthcare systems in the planet. And there's a private, and it's not a government run system. It's, it's private medicine that's 80 or 90% of the hospitals and the physicians are private providers. And there's academic medical centers as well that we talked about. But it's very ironic to me that those countries had healthcare systems that were fractured and they came to the United States and took a clean sheet approach to what kind of reforms needed to be done. They are more authoritarian societies than we are. And I think they salute authority there and they realized they had to reform their systems and they reformed their systems ironically based upon the U.S. model. But what they got out of it was they got healthcare costs per capita that are less than half of what we're spending in the United States right now. But there are painful trade-offs for everybody with choice and with uh, with maybe with the uh, incomes for, for uh, providers. Things, all, all of that is going to have to be looked at. But I would say that we probably want to do the reverse approach here. If, if we were honored to have the uh, Southeast and Asian countries study us, I think we should study them. And then some difficult decisions have to be made because no system is going to reform itself without a lot of pain and trade-offs. And do we have the will to do that? Well, I think that there's a time coming where it'll become apparent to everybody that something needs to be done. I have one more question. You talked about uh, quality of care. And uh, for our retired, we were getting all these regulations from the government, the office and the hospital about uh, what they call quality of care. And to my standpoint, it didn't seem like it had anything to do with quality of care. As an administrative standpoint, how do, what do you see as quality care and, and how do we measure it? Well, I think that could be a whole other hour's discussion. but. But, you know, the, the issue is is what its outcomes, right? Patient outcomes. And so at the, at, the, at, the, at the baseline, you want patients to have an improvement in their health status that's sustainable. I mean, that's the, that's the, the core competency of every medical system. I think that where we may uh, be missing the point is that we've put such an emphasis on patient and customer satisfaction and it costs a fortune to try to maintain those systems. And I'm not saying that patients shouldn't be satisfied. I'm not proposing that. But there are a lot of things that don't get back to the, the basics of providing, you know, basic medical care. We have so much regulation, so many systems. I think that the whole uh, electronic medical record thing needs to be streamlined. I mean, my wife is a nurse practitioner and she spends three or four hours a night doing her charts uh, because she doesn't have enough time in the day to see patients. and and do a chart. So a lot of that, I think, just needs to be re-examined and looked at. And then I think we've got to prioritize the, the, the healthy outcomes of patients as the number one priority and extend that to everybody. And patient satisfaction is important, but 
if you look at the Canadian system, their patient satisfaction is probably equal to ours, but then there are some aspects there where the people have to wait for surgical procedures and other things that happen, and same in England. Don't, so we've got to look at that as a trade-off. We're, we're about out of time. I want to thank you. This has been great. Uh, <clears throat> would you consider coming back maybe sometime in a month or two uh, and, and, and doing another one? Sure, I'd be glad to. Yeah, that'd be great because <laughs> it's great to be able to talk to someone who has a different perspective than, than, than Gene and I. So thank you again. Mark's going to take us home. Thank you, Don. Uh, and Gene, I don't know if you saw the story this morning that uh, the Medicare Advantage program, there's been another audit. You know, there are 3,800 plus plans. And now the uh, insurance fraud fines may reach $4.7 billion. So there you go. There's our uh, Medicare for profit uh, scheme. So uh, for listeners who want to learn more about Kentuckians for single payer healthcare, you can go to kyhealthcare dot org kyhealthcare.org if you would like to contact our chairperson Kay Tillo directly you can email Kay at nurse npo at aol.com that's nurse npo at aol.com guys another great show thanks again Bye. thank you Don thank you